0: is a lot closer, uh, please give a hand to Maggie Nelson and Brian Evanson. Um, I'm the Brian Evanson half of the Maggie Nelson and Brian Evanson, and I think that uh, Maggie's going to relax for a second while I read because otherwise she'd have to sit here and just look interested, uh, which is a tough thing sometimes. Um, I am delighted to be here. It's really a pleasure. I've been a customer of of Skylight um, for, for, um, you know, every time I've been in Los Angeles. I used to live in in, uh, um, Orange County years ago, and then uh, my sister lives uh, close by, so it's really a pleasure to be back here and a pleasure to have just moved to California as well. I just left Brown University and took a job at Cal Arts, uh, which has been awesome and uh, when people ask me about that um, usually I just send them a screenshot of the weather in the two places <laughs> and that explains everything I'm going to read you the title story for, uh, uh, from A Collapse of Horses which is the collection that just came out and uh, uh, then I think we're going to have a conversation after that A Collapse of Horses. I'm certain nobody in my family survived. I'm certain they burned, that their faces blackened and bubbled, just as did my own. But in their case, they did not recover, but perished. You are not one of them. You cannot be, for if you were, you would be dead. Why you choose to pretend to be, and what you hope to gain from it, this is what interests me. Now it is your turn to listen to me, to listen to my proofs, though I know you will not be convinced. Imagine this, walking through the countryside one day, you come across a paddock, lying there on their sides, in the dust, unnaturally still, are four horses. All four are are prone, with no horses standing. They do not breathe and do not, as far as you can see, move. They are, to all appearances, dead. And yet, on the edge of the paddock, not twenty yards distant, a man fills their trough with water. Are the horses alive and appearances deceptive? Has the man simply not yet turned to see that the horses are dead? Or has he been so shaken by what he has seen that he doesn't know what to do but proceed as if nothing has happened? If you turn and walk hurriedly on, leaving before anything decisive happens, what do the horses become for you? They remain both alive and dead, which makes them not quite alive nor quite dead. And what, in turn, carrying that paradoxical knowledge in your head, does that make you I do not think of myself as special, as anything but ordinary. I completed a degree at a third-tier university housed in the town in which I grew up. I graduated safely ensconced in the middle of my class. I found passable employment in the same town. I met a woman, married her, had children with her, three or perhaps four. There's some disagreement on that score. And then the two of us fell gradually and gently out of love. Then came an incident at work, an accident, a so-called freak one. It left me with a broken skull and, and for a short time, a certain amount of confusion. I awoke in an unfamiliar place to find myself strapped down. It seemed to me—I I will admit this too—it seemed for some time, hours at least, perhaps even days—that I was not in a hospital at all, but in a mental facility. But my wife, faithful and ever-present, slowly soothed me into a different understanding of my circumstances. My limbs, she insisted, were restrained simply because I had been delirious. Now that I no longer was, the straps could be loosened. Not quite yet, but soon. There was nothing to worry about. I just had to calm down. Soon everything would return to normal. In some days, I suppose everything did, or at least tried to. After the accident, I received some minor compensation from my employer and was put out to pasture. Such was the situation. Myself, my wife, my children at the beginning of a hot and sweltering summer, crammed in the house together with nowhere to go. I would awaken each day to find the house different from how it had been the day before. A door was in the wrong place. A window had stretched a few inches inches longer than it had been when I had gone to bed the night before. The light switch, I was certain, had been forced half an inch to the right. Always just a small thing. Almost nothing at all. Just enough for me to notice. In the beginning, I tried to point these changes out to my wife. She seemed puzzled at first, then she became somewhat evasive in her responses. For a time, part of me believed uh, believed her responsible. Perhaps she had developed some deft technique for quickly changing and modifying the house. But another part of me felt certain, or nearly so, that this was impossible. And as, the, as time went on, my wife's evasiveness took on a certain wariness, even fear. This convinced me that not only was she not changing the house, but that daily her mind simply adjusted to the changed world and dubbed it the same. She literally could not see the differences that I saw. Just as she could not see that sometimes we had three children and sometimes four. No, she could only ever see three, or perhaps Four to be honest I don't remember how many she saw but the point was as long as we were in the house there were sometimes three children and sometimes four but that was due to the idiosyncrasies of the house as well I would not know how many children there would be until I went from room to room sometimes the room at the end of the hall was narrow and had one bed in it other times it had grown large in the night and had two I would count the number of beds each morning when I woke up and sometimes there would be three, sometimes four from there I could extrapolate how many children I had and I found this a more reliable method than trying to count the children themselves I would never know how much of a father I was until I counted beds I could not discuss this with my wife. When I tried to display my proofs to her, she thought I was joking. Quickly, however, she decided it was an indication of a troubled mental state and insisted I seek treatment, which, under duress, I did, to little avail. The only thing the treatment convinced me of was that there were certain things one shouldn't say even to one's spouse, things they are just not ready and may never be ready to hear. My children were not ready for it either. The few times I tried to fulfill my duties as a father and sit them down to tell them the sobering truth that sometimes one of them did not exist, unless it was that sometimes one of them existed twice, I got nowhere, or less than nowhere, confusion, tears, panic, and after they reported back to my wife more threats of treatment. What then was the truth of the situation? Why was I the only one who could see the house changing? What were my obligations to my family in terms of helping them see and understand? How was I to help them if they did not desire to be helped? Since I am a sensible man, a part of me couldn't help but wonder if what I was experiencing had any relation to reality at all. Perhaps there was something wrong with me. Perhaps I tried to believe the accident had changed me. I did try my level best, or nearly so, to see things their way. I tried to ignore the lurch reality took each morning, the way the house was not exactly the house it had been the night before, as if someone had moved us to a similar but not quite identical house as we slept. Perhaps they had. I tried to believe I had three, not four, children, and when that did not work that I had four, not three, children, and when that didn't work that there was no correlation between children in beds to turn a blind eye to that room at the end of the hall and the way it kept expanding out or collapsing in like a lung but nothing seemed to work I could not believe perhaps if we moved things would be different perhaps the house was in some manner or other alive or haunted maybe or just wrong but when I raised the idea of moving with my wife she coughed out a strange barking laugh before enumerating all the reasons that this was a bad idea "'There was no money and little prospect of any coming in now "'that I'd had my accident and lost my job. "'We bought the house recently enough "'that we would take a substantial loss if we'd sold it. "'We simply could not afford to move. "'And besides, what was wrong with the house?' "'It was a perfectly good house,' she said." How could I argue with this? From her perspective, of course, she was right. There was no reason to leave. For her, there was nothing wrong with the house. How could there be? Houses don't change on their own, she told me indignantly. This was not something that reason could allow. But for me, that was exactly the problem. The house, for reasons I didn't understand, wasn't acting like a house. I spent days thinking, mulling over what to do. To get away from the house, I wandered alone in the countryside. If I walked long enough, I could return home sufficiently exhausted to sleep rather than spending most much of the night on watch, trying to capture the moment when parts of the house changed. For a long time I thought that might be enough, that if I spent as little time in the house as possible and returned only when exhausted, I could bring myself not to think about how unsound it was, that I would wake up sufficiently hazy to no longer care what was where and how the house differed from before. That might have gone on for a long time, even forever or the equivalent. But then in my walks I stumbled upon, or perhaps was led to, something. It was a paddock. I saw horses lying in the dirt, seemingly dead couldn't be dead could they? I looked to see if I could tell if they were breathing and found I could not. I could not honestly say if they were dead or alive and I still cannot say. I noticed a man on the far side of the paddock filling their trough with water facing away from them and wondered if he had seen the horses behind him and if not when he turned whether he would be as unsettled as I. Would he approach them and determine they were dead or would would his approach startle them to life or had he seen them dead already and had his mind been unable to take it in For a moment I waited, but at the time and the moment there seemed something more terrible to me about the idea of knowing for certain that the horses were dead than than there was about not knowing whether they were dead or alive. And so I hastily left, not realizing that to escape a moment of potential discomfort, I was leaving the forever in my head as not quite dead, but in another sense, nearly alive. That to leave as I had was to assume the place of the man beside the trough without ever being able to turn and learn the truth the days that followed that image haunted me. I turned it over, scrutinized it, peered at every facet of it, trying to see if there was something I had missed, if there was a clue that would sway me toward believing the horses were alive or believing they were dead, if there was a clue to reveal to me that the man beside the trough knew more than I had, than, than I had believed, to no avail. The problem remained insolubly balanced. If I go back, I couldn't help asking myself, will anything have changed? Would the horses still, even now, be lying there? If they were, would they have begun to decay in a way that would prove them dead? Or would they be exactly as I had last seen them, including the man still filling the trough? What a terrifying thought. Since I'd stumbled upon the paddock, I didn't know exactly where it was. Every walk I went on, even every step I took away from the house, I risked stumbling onto it again. I began walking slower, stopping frequently, scrutinizing my surroundings and shying away from any area that might remotely harbor a paddock. But after a while, I deemed even that insufficiently safe and found myself hardly able to leave the house. And yet, with the house always changing, I couldn't remain there, either. There was, I gradually realized, a simple choice. Either I would have to steal myself in return to confront the horses, or I would have to confront the house. Either horse or house, either house or horse, but what sort of choice was that, right, really? The hordes were hardly different, pronounced more or less the same, with only one letter having accidentally been dialed up too high or too low in the alphabet. No, I came to feel, by going out to avoid the house and finding the horses I had, in a manner of speaking, simply found the house again. It was, it must be, it was, excuse me, it must be, that the prone horses were there for me, to teach a lesson to me, that they were meant to tell me something about their near namesake, the house. The devastation of that scene, the collapse of the horses, gnawed on me. It was telling me something, something I wasn't sure I wanted to hear at first part of me resisted the idea no I told myself it was too extreme a step lives were at stake the lives of my wife and at least three children the risks were too great but what was I to do in my mind I kept seeing the collapsed horses and I felt my thoughts again churn over their state were they alive or were they dead I kept imagining myself there at the trough paralyzed, unable to turn and look, and it came to seem to me my perpetual condition. In my worst moments, it seemed the state not only of me, but of the whole world, with all of us on the verge of turning around and finding the dead behind us. And from there, I slipped back to the house, which, like the horses, seemed in a sort of suspended state. I knew it was changing, that something strange was happening. I was sure of that, at least, but I didn't know how or what the changes meant, and I couldn't make anyone else see them. When it came to the house, I tried to convince myself I could see what others could not, but the rest of the world was like the man filling the horse trough, unable to see the fallen horses." thinking this naturally led me away from the idea of the house and and back instead to the horses what I should have done I told myself was to have thrown a rock I should have stooped and scraped the dirt until my fingers closed around a stone then shied it at one of the horses waiting either for the meaty thud of dead flesh or the shudder and annoyed wicker of a struck living horse not knowing is something you can only suspend yourself in for the briefest moment No, even if what you have to face is horrible is an inexplicably dead herd of horses even an inexplicably dead family it must be faced and so I turned away from the house and went back to look for the paddock stealing myself for whatever I could find I was ready, rock in hand I would find out the truth about the horses and would accept it no matter what it was Or at least I would have, for no matter how hard I looked, no matter how long I walked, I could not find the paddock. I walked for miles, days even. I took every road, known and unknown, but it simply wasn't there. Was something wrong with me, I wondered. Had the paddock existed at all? Was it simply something my mind had invented to cope with the problem of the house? House, horse, horse, house, almost the same word. For all intents and purposes in this case, it was the same word. I would still throw a rock, so to speak, I told myself, but I would throw that so-called rock not at a horse, but at a house. But still, I hesitated, thinking, planning. Night after night, I sat, imagining coils of smoke writhing around me, followed by rising flames. In my head, I watched myself waiting patiently, calmly, until the flames had reached just the right height. Then I began to call out for my family, awakening them, urging them to leave the house. In my head, we unfurled sheets through the windows and shimmied nimbly nimbly to safety. We reached safety every time. I saw her escape so many times in my head, rendered in just the same way, that I realized it would take the smallest effort on my part to jostle it out of the realm of imagination and into the real world. Then the house would be gone and could do me no more damage, and my family and I would be safe. I had had enough unpleasant interactions with those who desired to give me treatment since my accident, however, that I knew to take steps to protect myself. I would have to make the fire look like an accident. For this purpose, I took up smoking. (laughs) I planned carefully. I smoked for several weeks, just long enough to accustom my wife and children to the idea. They didn't care for it, but they didn't try to stop me. Since my accident, they had been shy of me and rarely tried to stop me from doing anything. Seemingly as a concession to my wife, I agreed not to smoke in the bedroom. I promised to smoke only outside the house, with the proviso that if it was too cold to smoke outside, I might do so downstairs near an open window. During the third or perhaps fourth week after I took up smoking with my wife and children asleep, it was indeed too cold, or at least I judged that I could argue it to have been such if confronted after the fact. So I cracked open the window near the couch and prepared the images in my mind. I would, I told myself, allow my arm to droop. The tip of my cigarette to nudge against the fabric of the couch and then I would allow, the, uh, allow first the couch and then the drapes to begin to smoke and catch fire. I would wait until the moment when, in my fantasies, I had envisioned myself standing and calling for my wife and children. Then I would do just that, and all would be as I had envisioned. Soon my family and I would be safe, and the house would be destroyed. Once that was done, I thought, perhaps I would find the paddock again as well, with the horses standing this time and clearly alive. And yet, the fabric of the couch did not catch fire. Instead, only smoldering and stinking, and soon I pressed the cigarette in too deeply, and it died. I found and lit another. When the result was the same, I gave up on both the couch and the cigarette. I turned instead to matches and used them to ignite the drapes. As it turned out, these burned much better, going up all at once and lighting my hair and clothing along with them. By the time I'd flailed about enough to extinguish my body, the whole room was aflame. Still, I continued with my plan. I tried to call to my wife and children, but when I took a breath to do so, my lungs filled with smoke and choking, I collapsed. I do not know how I lived through the fire perhaps my wife dragged me out and then went back for the children and perished only then when I awoke I was here unsure of how I had arrived my face and body were badly burned and the pain was excruciating I asked about my family but the nurse dodged the question shushed me and only told me I should sleep this was how I knew my family was dead that they had been lost in the fire and the nurse didn't know how to tell me my only consolation was that the house the source of all our problems had burned to the ground for a time I was kept alone Drugged. How long, I cannot say. Perhaps days, perhaps weeks. Long enough in any case for my burns to slough and heal, for the skin grafts that I must surely have needed to take effect, for my hair to grow fully back. The doctors must have worked very hard on me, for I must admit that except to the most meticulous eye, I look exactly as I did before the fire. So you see... I have the truth straight in my mind, and it will not be easy to change. There is little point in you coming coming to me with these stories, little point in pretending once again that my house remained standing and was never touched by flame, little point coming here pretending to be my wife, claiming there was no fire, that you found me lying on the floor in the middle of our living room with my eyes staring fixedly into the air, seemingly unharmed. No, I have accepted that I am the victim of a tragedy, one of my own design. I know my family is gone, and though I do not yet understand why you would want to convince me that you are my wife, what you hope to gain, eventually I will. You will let something slip, and the game will be over. At worst, you are deliberately trying to deceive me so as to gain something from me. But what? At best, someone has decided this might lessen the blow, that if I can be made to believe my family is not dead, or even just mostly dead and not quite alive, I might be convinced not to surrender to despair. Trust me. Whether you wish me good or ill, I do hope you succeed. I would like to be convinced. I truly would. I would love to open my eyes and suddenly see my family surrounding me, safe and sound. I would even tolerate the fact that the house is still standing, that unfinished business remains between it and me, that somewhere horses still lie collapsed and waiting to be either alive or dead, that we all in some sense remain like the man at the trough with our backs turned. I understand what I might have to gain from it, but you I still do not understand. But do your worst, disrupt my certainty, try to fool me, make me believe. Get me to believe there's nothing dead behind me. If you can make that happen, I think we both agree, then anything is possible. Thank you. Is that okay?
1: Yeah, well, look, everyone has a uh, groaning number. Is that me just moving them?
0: Oh, it is. It's, I think it might be me moving
1: them. Okay. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. That was so great, Brian. And I feel like I'm in a, um, I don't know, I feel like I'm in a great. Maybe it's the disassociative logic of a lot of Brian's stories I've been reading all week has gotten to me because I feel like I'm in a good dream, but a lot of these are bad dreams but like a good dream <laughs> where like where a writer that I've been you know not only just reading but has been really important to me for over a decade um, you know, not only am I here talking to him at skylight but he's also now my new colleague um in a program that i love so it's a very good so i hope it's not a dream (laughs) we'll see but that leads me actually to my first question and uh you know i could i have a lot i have a lot of questions and i could talk to brian if he would talk to me for a long time so i I will talk to you okay (laughs) that's what we're here to do but um but i do want to um you know i do want to i'm sure you guys have things to um to ask as well so but but i'll just i'll start um, and we'll see how we get to but um yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing i was the first thing I was thinking about was um uh, Along these lines, I mean, what you just read was kind of a case in point, but maybe a little bit different in that it has this kind of begging in a more hopeful sense, Uh but I also feel like that that the way that your stories end is very much what... what always seems to me I think about the Henry James line about trying to construct the right degree of bewilderment you uh-huh. know. and I think that they I mean and they're often a line like he stepped outside to his destruction or he stepped outside <laughs> and waited to see what you know who he would become next or yeah, there's yeah. a kind of like stepping out um, of the kind of like kind of breaking of the proscenium but also um, but but kind of trying to introduce um, I mean I think of this as a kind of genre thing maybe about horror which is like we're waiting and we're waiting to get the final reveal of like did he burn down the house or didn't he or you know will this person escape the terrible abusive relationship or not (laughs) or you know and I think, and I just wonder if you might talk a minute about, um, you know, if you do feel like that ending moment is so important and how you come to them and how that right degree of bewilderment, um, yeah. how you know it when you hear it, I guess.
0: Uh, you know, it, it is something that I, I, I really, as, as a reader, what I really like are stories that kind of stick with me and that I keep on thinking about long after I put the, the book down. And and I think a lot of those stories do have what you're talking about, this kind of right degree of b- bewilderment or or this, this kind of open-endedness to them a little bit. Uh, and it has to be a kind of productive open-endedness as opposed to just the story that makes you say huh? Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, um, so so I think that's one of the things I I do kind of strive for in my fiction is is to reach this point um, where where the questions have been kind of posed and kind of um, um, armatured as as well as possible and 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 where things could really tip and resolve in one way or the other. But it's I, I prefer kind of leaving things kind of teetering and balanced at that moment. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where that comes from. I I know. That when I was young, everyone would talk to me about Freytag's pyramid and how great that was, and and I think I just got really tired of that, and mm-hmm, so I I mm-hmm. kept on saying I don't have to have a denouement, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, I think it's partly that. I don't yeah, know. yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you ever write out a kind Ask of? The, the, yeah, like past it and like like something happens that later on you say like that totally flattened it and didn't happen or is it um, or is it more like truncating um like the truncating comes kind of
0: I think naturally. it comes naturally to yeah. me. So, um yeah, yeah so I, I I rarely um you know when I'm revising a story I rarely kind of I think the structure is often in place by the time yeah. I finish the first draft but then yeah, yeah. then it, it kind of tightens or expands in different parts of it um for for pacing and other reasons. i spend a lot of time working on the language and um but but that basic shape or structure there is a moment when I just think okay that's the that's end. It, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean that's something that I admire about your work so much, and I, I wish I wish all prose and all fiction were this way, and in that, in that it's I'd be out
0: of a job if all prose and all fiction. <laughs> yeah,
1: right, is. right, no, right. But I just mean like the the, the attention to, um, you know, you're constructing. Plots or conflicts that often have a very harrowing um, yeah. pro- propulsion to them, but at the same time, whether it's like the horse house, you know, the, it's also like you know, for like the for the the, the linguists among us, there's kind of like a um, there's a kind of conceptual plotting about the language and yeah. the structure of the story as it goes along too. Which yeah, you
0: know. yeah, no, I think that's a, a big part of a lot of my stories. These 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 moves in language and characters, consciousness of language, and, and language is something that both kind of helps us. to to, to understand the world and maybe doesn't help us always as much as we think to understand yeah. the world yeah, yeah. But, that we hit these limits um, that, that are very hard to surmount or go around
1: so yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe on that about understanding or facing i was um, a lot of you probably read that Brian had a great uh, profile in The New Yorker that went up online yesterday, and there was one great story in there about. I hope it's fine. I mean,
2: whatever. (laughs) But like,
1: but saying that, like, in graduate school, like, like a computer lab that you were writing, and someone like that you weren't aware that it was uh, arduous, uh, strenuous psychic labor, and then someone was saying like, "Are you okay?" Because you're actually shaking as you were writing out the story. But that made me think when you were reading about the in that title story in particular with this um, drama about whether or not the person's going to turn around and face whether the horses are dead or alive and kind of face it and it made me think about you know the role that um, I guess just in writing particularly maybe about violence in general which is this kind of uh, you know how do I say it, this kind of balance between like a kind of compulsion to face it like look at it um, straight up and then obviously all the kind of uh, uh, Kind of puffier like horror tropes of of conjuring things that we uh-huh. don 't actually see, but I just wonder I guess you whether it 's violence or just this notion of facing it, if you feel like things have changed for you as a writer like does the shaking continue or is the shak- <laughs> does the shaking indicate that you're onto to something good or yeah. is it, i don't know
0: well so' for so that story that that um that gets talked about in that article that I was working on, that, that happened, was the story of the Munich Window, which is uh-huh. from my first uh, collection, um, um, Altman's Tongue. And it's a long story. It's a story that's that's kind of um, told by this very kind of um, unreliable and deluded and intense guy who seems to be involved in some pretty awful stuff that he's not telling people exactly what. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it was that. It was just like, mm-hmm. as I kind of kept on working on it and writing it, I became, I felt like I was becoming closer and closer to that. Guy and that personality, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that I I'm really interested in in um, people's delusions, mm-hmm. um, partly because I feel like like that's you know, we're, we're never all that far away from from delusion when we're trying to understand the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about the way in which we process the world that, that does have this personal um, level to it that, that can very quickly move into a pathology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I've always just been intrigued by the way in which people's mm-hmm. minds work and mm-hmm. twist and turn. And there are these moments where I feel like I realize too well how someone's minds work. Yeah. And that'll yeah. that can that'll be the yeah. moment where it's, it's hard. And That's it's deceptive, too, because I think what happens when I'm working on a, a piece of fiction is I become so interested in the language and the, the sonic qualities of, of the sentences and, and the syntactical qualities of the sentences that, that sometimes... Um, that sneaks up on me. That mm-hmm. there's a moment when something kind of manifests in terms of feeling like this voice is, is you know, has entered into my head that I maybe yeah. aren't crazy about having there.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could talk for a minute about delusion because mm-hmm. I mean, I just read all of these. Um over the week, which was an amazing week, I had to pick times of the day that were <laughs> appropriate for reading. So I didn't. So I got sleep over the course of the week. But I, I found that, like during the day, like I said, on a on a long car trip I was taking, was a good time until I got to the car trip story, uh. and, about, and the, the Reno story, and collapse yeah. of horses and everything was shot. But um, but okay. But so about delusion, I guess I was thinking. Um, I mean, this is a very. I, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you use the word evil very uh-huh. much at all, personally, or in the writing. I don't feel like it's a word that comes up a lot. But no. when I was thinking about questions, my the very distilled question I had as I was writing things down was, does Brian think all evil is disassociative? <laughs> like, is, <laughs> is, is, is there something... Because in so many of the stories, like I'm thinking about the open curtain, you know, where there's the... Lael, yeah. uh, who is the kind of imagined half brother or, or yeah. you know demon yeah. who's speaking to the person to read and trying to, you know, there's always a kind of like there's, al- I mean, and then also this I had the pleasure of reading, um, which I actually hadn't read before, and I encourage you all to, Father of Lies, which is Brian's first novel, which was really interesting as a as a opening salvo, you know, but but that too whether it's, it doesn't have to be a person or an imagined Lael figure, but it's often like an accident or something, you know, there's a, there's a representative fissure that, mm-hmm. that that begins the process of the spl- of the splitting and the delusion, and I just wonder. But I but I was trying to I was rereading the books, looking for were yeah. there any instances of um, self destruction or destruction of others or violence that were not um, that were not founded in disassociation. Uh-huh. I don't know. And I didn't I didn't really find that many. I mean, unless, well, no. but then it's hard because then you could say, well, is religion and disassociation? Yeah, yeah. Which is um, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I don't think I use the word evil very much in my work for for whatever reason, and I probably use it most often in my life in connection with politics. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but but I I do think it's I, I guess I feel like like that. Um, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I feel like in in some ways that notion of of whether something is evil or, or not is is in some ways. Beside the point, because I think if you if you call something evil, then you you also give yourself an alibi in terms of feeling like you don't have to understand it mm-hmm. fully. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's evil. I, I know what that is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so so I I think that may be one of the reasons I avoid it. I mean, I think there is an in, like in father realized there's an intense critique of religion and an intense critique of patriarchy. Um, but but it, it is mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it's it's not it's polemical, but it doesn't quite get to the mm-hmm. point of calling, for instance, the main character in that um, evil or good. Or yeah, yeah, I think yeah. the psychiatrist yeah. does call him evil at one point, right? But but that's you know you have to decide. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean maybe that's also another question I had about patriarchy because I think um, uh, some of my students who were here, we were reading Octavia Butler's *A uh, Bloodchild* just yesterday, I think, in class, and we were talking about um, that. Title story, and we're talking about the way that I mean, I posed this question, and I think it was posed by them too. But in that story, where there's a kind of um, I mean, it's this typical of butler, but where there's a kind of gender switching, so it's a kind of matriarchal alien in this mm-hmm. story who's um, who's enacting the um the power rituals that result in harvesting these human bodies Mm -hmm. for grubs, you know, and whatever. I'm sure I won't go into it for those of you who haven't read it. But, um, but the point is, is that, so we were talking about, is there, you know, are the power issues at play here with the kind of, um, with the kind of grotesque exigencies of biological reproduction and what that might, might make creatures do, um, and to, what, to what extent are they detachable from gender um, uh-huh. relations but I was but in your books you know I mean there are a couple stories in collapse of horses where I love the one cult where mm-hmm. the tammy I think is her name who's like uh-huh. the evil abusive not evil but yeah. like you know whatever. <laughs> she, she's you know she's like the one you're rooting for the main character to get away from but he he does not um, but for the most part you know I think because of the critique of patriarchy that you're involved with um, it, it does remain... It seems like there's a fundamental, you know, kind of uh-huh. triangle of, like, patriarchy, disassociation, and, um, and violence. And I just wondered if you felt yeah. like... Um,
0: yeah, that's the kind of unholy trinity of my fiction. Right. <laughs>
1: but I mean, I guess yeah. I just felt like, do, like you know, do, do you feel like the patriarchy part of that...
2: Uh-huh. Is,
1: is, can you imagine ever... I don't know. Like, does does it have to go with it? I guess is it? Like,
0: uh, no, I don't think yep. it has to. And I think I think over time that's changed for mm-hmm, me. I think mm-hmm. that that Altman's tongue and and Father Lies in particular really focus on that, mm-hmm. and then other books have have a different mm-hmm. level of focus on it. There, there, it is often something that is the case in the work. I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Um, But but the the prominence of it shifts. I yeah. think a little bit. Yeah. And there are, you know, I think. I, I have in in some of my books of stories. There's, uh, I guess, in fugue state. There's a story called Younger, which is about um, two two girls who feel like they've been abandoned in a house, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. another story um, mm-hmm. uh, that that's very similar to that mm-hmm. um, called Girls in Tents, and and that's kind of my attempt to to mm-hmm. move into a different sort of space mm-hmm. and think about yeah. childhood as 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 this space that. Um, you know, is, is, is like a non-pathological delusion, yeah. if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, but also I think that, you know, the, in, in those stories, the um, patriarchy, if it's present, is only present because the, the, the parents are, are absent or right. gone. Yeah. yeah, I
1: mean, I'm thinking of the story, I can't remember the title of the, the with the sadistic play that the two boys yeah. underdo, undertake in the f- finger-cutting.
0: Yeah. in yeah, in yeah. This,
1: what's that called? It's called The
0: Punish. The
1: Punish, exactly. Mm-hmm. How could I ever forget? <laughs> how could I ever forget? Um, but The Punish, and then I was thinking about that with the ex-father from The Wavering Knife, which yeah. is one of my all-time favorites of your stories, and I was thinking about how it is true that when there are children... This is a little bit happens in what you just read, Clubs of Horses, but, but... But that the whatever kind of gnarly um, unspooling is happening often the children are trying to kind of set something right yeah and they know that it they and the last line i think of the ex-father is, yeah. you know and that would show the father that everything you know right, that, right. that would set everything right but of course you know that everything is right. Right. that will not set everything right to reenact this mother's suicide yeah. you know that will not go well right. but you but you but but, but there's a, but I feel like that's some of the most you know affecting right
0: right i mean but that yeah. uh, that attempt to actually change something or do something yeah. and feeling helpless but to Still, you know, maybe very wrongly approaching how to get out of that, but right. still, still trying. I find really, really moving and admirable. Yeah. So yeah, yeah,
1: yeah no, the, the older sister of that story, I think, is a great yeah. hero yeah, of, me too. <laughs> in literature. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I guess. Well, maybe I was thinking about this is kind of related to the patriarchy question about but about some of the women, but in that story I mentioned cult uh-huh. I was thinking about, and this is a little bit true of Collapse of Horses too, but I love it how, like you're thinking, you read like a really violent story and you think, okay, this is really <coughs> difficult or hard to take, but then you reach a story where, where in that story, just, I mean, she does, has stabbed him with a small knife before yeah. the story begins, but most of the story is just the horror of, like, codependency yeah, or, like, yeah. abusive relationships, and it's very, like, I found it, like, much more like upsetting in, in some ways, and yeah. I wonder what, how it feels differently for you to write. Those. Yeah, I
0: mean, it definitely yeah. feels different um, for me to write those sorts of stories, and, and uh, but, yeah, they, they are upsetting just a whole different way, <laughs> and then I think part of the way of, when I, when I put the collection together, it's trying to figure yeah. out kind of a, a texture to it or a path from from different sorts of yeah. um, stories to you know back and forth. So I mean that story. I mean it's yeah. funny. This collapse of horses. A lot of the stories in here um, began with either stories told for, to me mm-hmm. or or little things that I'd read or or things I experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's much more so the case than my other work. Even though mm-hmm. I think that you know the stories are weird enough that it's a little hard probably to perceive that. Yeah. Yeah. So but like past Reno, which is the car trip story you were talking about. Right. Like a lot of the little details of that story are things that were when when my, my wife and I were traveling before she was my wife were traveling across Nevada we, we came to this um convenience store just outside A of beef Reno. They had yeah, had just eat so much beef jerky. It was insane. And different so I'm kinds. i am never going to say beef
1: jerky the same <laughs> yeah. way again, nor will you. Yeah.
0: So it had the normal beef jerky and then it just kind of each row down got weirder and weirder until they were just these dirty plastic bags that were full of pieces of meat. And I thought <laughs> I thought this is this is just a part of Nevada I've never been part of and and then as I kept on traveling just weirder and weirder things began to happen so so a lot of the things in that right. story are kind of me just taking those weird things and pushing them a little farther
1: Did you ever see a teddy bear that you could record the
0: heartbeat. I and did. Put into yeah, the, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. When 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 uh, I have a three year old child, and when uh, my wife was was pregnant, um, there was an advertisement um, kind of at the um, the the uh, um, whatever it's called the OBGYN, where we were going um, for you could order. Uh, a teddy bear that would have the sound of the baby's heart um, recorded on a heart inside of the teddy bear. And, um, you know, it was 50 bucks or something like that. But that just struck me as so strange and so disturbing. And the idea was you would take the teddy bear and put it next to the baby, and then the baby would be able to listen to something else with its own heart. And that also just seemed it seemed wrong to me. And so there's a story in this collection which is kind of about that um, and how wrong that can go so.
1: It is definitely a terrifying story, um, I, don't know, I have a couple other questions. But how are we doing it for time? Are you guys, we, Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, well, I don't know how. This one's kind of weird. But um, <laughs> but like, okay. So there's a lot of, uh, I mean, in some ways, I mean, with the background that you've had, and in in terms of, and some of the things that the New Yorker. Um, Know, profiles laying out about your past with Mormonism uh-huh. and the past about you know getting in trouble in certain ways for your for the writing and, and the voluntary excommunication. But you know it seems like um, I mean I don't think you said this per se exactly. So I'm just maybe projecting. But okay. it, but I think that <laughs> but it seems like you know that there is in your work a kind of um, insistence on the radical the radical freedom and power of the imagination, no matter what that means, but that it doesn't necessarily, obviously, um, reflect in one's actions in life. Uh Um, But the weird thing about the stories is that it seems like most every character, as what you just read, that is kind of involved in a swirl Mm -hmm. um, precisely has lost the capacity to differentiate between imagination and reality. And I wonder... I don't know. I I just wonder about...
0: What that feels like yeah i mean i I do think I have this kind of belief in the radical power of the imagination, um but also the belief that um that's kind of coupled with this kind of intense distrust of of the nature of reality itself mm-hmm. and 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 you know the sense that 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 you know, there's something always really contingent in relation to reality, mm-hmm. and probably coupled as well with an in- intense belief in in human fallibility. Mm-hmm. And so you bring those three things together, and and you know, I, I really think the imagination is the thing that that you know um, uh, saves us in some ways, but it also is this. It's not really ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, it can go really wrong at the same time, mm-hmm. and so so i i, I guess i'm'm I'm just interested in figuring all those things out. I think there is a kind of pessimism mm-hmm. uh, in in my work, which is also combined with a weird optimism because I grew up in mm-hmm. Provo, Utah, in a place called happy mm-hmm. valley and mm-hmm. um, so but it's just it's a weird you know i, I don 't know there's those two different impulses yeah. that kind of yeah yeah. yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so I don't have a good answer for no,
1: that. No, really, it wasn't even a question. But so, <laughs> but, you know, but I think no, that's good. I don't know. I mean, this, this last thing I think I'll ask, which is maybe jumping the gun a little bit, that Brian and I are going to do a panel um, mm. at AWP about more centered on violence and writing. But you know, when I first started reading Brian, I was trying to work on violence, you know, in my own writing and work, and it was very revelatory and provocative to read. All of his oeuvre, and I think that. Um, but one thing I thought, I've thought about living in this town, which is a you know, Hollywood town, and you've just moved here. But you know that there's like a very. Um, there are things that literature does with violence that the vi- that the visual image, um, be it moving or static, mm-hmm. or, that is very different. And I just wondered if you, um, if there was a lot of traffic for you between. Uh, I mean, I, I know how deeply that you read in literature and global mm-hmm. literatures and different things. And is there, do you take, do you see things, especially with violence, that are very distinct between the visual use of it and literary use? And are those, in, are those, is it generative yeah. to you, the difference, or do you mostly are you not really interested? No, in no, I, I'm quite interested. I think
0: it is It is generative. I'm actually, I'm teaching a class right now which is on um, um, it's called uh, I don't remember what, it's called Terror and something else. <laughs> um, and, and it ends up being about uh, uh, um, you know, horror fiction and then also um, we're showing some films as well mm-hmm. and thinking about you know, what what's fiction able to do on the page that mm-hmm. just, you know, you, you can't do without a kind of transformation or sea change mm-hmm. and uh, in images, I mean, there's some things that film is incredibly good about. I mean, I'm, I, I watch a lot of film and mm-hmm. enjoy it quite a bit. And there's other things that I think fiction is really good about. Mm-hmm. And there, there, there is a very different effect in terms of, you know, some of my work does have fairly violent images, um, but but it's different to take it in as language as opposed mm-hmm. to as, as as visually. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there definitely is a, a transformation that potentially occurs there mm-hmm. um, for for. Better or for worse, mm-hmm. um, you know. I think some filmmakers are really able to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some, something like In Bruges mm-hmm. is very good at taking something that's incredibly intense and gory, these moments, and making it still kind of mm-hmm. work in its context. But, mm-hmm. but you know, it doesn't always work. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and so I mean, that's that's one thing. I mean, mm-hmm. is thinking about. Um, Mm-hmm. You know is 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 as you move from one medium to, to another, mm-hmm. things really do potentially change quite a bit
1: yeah, I mean, I think about I can't remember the name of the play that 's up right now, but I was just reading about it the other day, but when things become theatrical and communal as opposed to kind of the solitary mm-hmm. experience of reading, yeah um, there can be this you know the play that 's up now is kind of like you know they're kind of like i've just listening to the guy on the radio saying you know like it's really gross, and the stuff they 're doing kind of like you know more than. Uh-huh. Hello Man stuff, whatever. I don't know what they I can't... You guys probably know what I'm talking about. I don't even know what I'm talking about. It's like... <laughs> and it's some NPR drive. But anyway, but he was saying, like, we judge our success by how many... Like, if someone walked out, that means we must have really been doing hmm. something because they couldn't take it, you know? And I'm kind of like, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty easy bar to one, So if hit, no, you know, one, no well, one comes yeah, anymore, yeah, well, then you're totally well, successful. Well, like, I mean, as someone said about, like, a Tarantino movie, you're like, yeah, like, you scalp someone on film and you're probably going to get a reaction. Like, it's kind of... That's pretty quick. But I guess with reading, it's interesting to me that, like, um, mm-hmm. you, 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 don't, you don't have that kind of theatrical sense of what kind of reaction that you're gaining from, from a reader. And I know mm-hmm. with your books, I've... I mean, The Open Curtain took me... You know, I read it really ravenously, the first yeah. two parts, and then the third part of that which is you know very brilliant and very difficult you know I was so worried because I liked the girl in the second section so much and I was so worried about what was going to be her fate but it took me like one to two weeks to build up the strength to read the third section you know but that's the kind of um, but those kind of temporal experiences of writing um, and I had to kind of like trust you enough to like I had to like think for two weeks, like if I trusted you enough <laughs> to read the third section, you know. But like that's not possible in visual media. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, no, it it is a different sort of thing, and it, it there's a different kind of speed to it. I mean, yeah. it is interesting the way that that a lot of books kind of. I mean, this is what I kind of began with, but a lot of books. Um, kind of continue to work on you after you put them mm-hmm. down. And, and so there is this, this kind of interesting thing that can happen where a book kind of just keeps on playing mm-hmm. out in your head or keeps on changing and modifying. Mm-hmm. And, and I think often that the book's the books that I really like are these books that that I just keep thinking about, mm-hmm. and that, that have a kind of complexity to them that, that 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 keep me kind of returning to thinking about what I've just experienced. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's it. Is they're intensive and they're experiential, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know not gratuitous. As the other thing, I feel mm-hmm. like like I, I do like to feel like even if the moments that are violent in my work are there's there's a reason that they're there mm-hmm. and that they're doing something. Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, maybe we, let's take some questions, you guys, for. Brian,
0: that you have, yeah. 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 Um, so I get this, step, and maybe this is a question for both of you, because I know you've, you've written this. Of but so it seems that, like I get the sense that the point is not that you're upset by reading this, but like, what do you think is on the other side of reading this? Right. Like, is that, like, m- if there's something what do you think? You know, I, I think that that work should should change you it should should make you think about what it means to be human and it should should put you in a position to understand it better it should kind of increase your your empathy um, you know all, all those sorts of things and you know I, I often think of it as, as kind of you know you, you're undergoing something so it's it's that you're 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 moving through something that that does have an effect on you and you know we think about this with experience all the time a lot of things that we go through that are really difficult, are the things that are most formative, formative for us, and that really do make us into interesting people. Um, but but yeah, I just translate that partly to literature. So, and Maggie's, you, you've written a lot about stuff like this. Mm-hmm.
1: I yeah. guess so. Right? <laughs> no, I don't know. I've like taken a break for a while from the cruelty, violence yeah. uh, arena. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I didn't ever. I don't. I don't. I, I think that. I mean, this is something else I admire in Brian's work is that um, when you ask what's on the other side of the difficult yeah. experience, sometimes I think that um what am I trying to say? I mean, people talk about this a lot with horror movies that, like, it, that that you know we can be mutilated or you know like we, we can we I mean, we are walking around in these bodies of, of blood and bone and and things do happen and I think that in say like my book the red parts or something which is very much about kind of going to this courtroom trial with my mother and sitting with her while she kind of refaces these autopsy photos of her sister who was murdered. It's kind of like um, well, the thing I admire in Brian's work. I guess I want to say is that I think that it. Especially if you read it kind of in total, can make a kind of argument that, there, that the things that are found in darkness or in puncturability or in mutilation are not only things that are related to just you know evil or, or ill doing. They're also just part of um, they're part of uh, being in this bag of bones, you know, and that and that they are often made most manifest to us via violence, but that. All all interest in such doesn't need be pathological, mm-hmm. that, because darkness is a part of our our, our birthright, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, I, and that was something I think I, I kind of grew up with. I mean, there's there's lots of things that Mormonism gave me that I, I kind of wish it hadn't given me, <laughs> but but one thing is you know growing up, uh, uh, Mormon um, church leader Brigham Young. Um, At a certain point in his journal, discourses suggested that you know everything is worthy of attention—everything in heaven and everything in hell and everything in between—and I think I took that more seriously than probably any other Mormon did. So, yeah, I I guess I took the hell part the most seriously.
1: Other people, questions?
0: Yeah, Amanda, or go 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 ahead. Oh.
2: Hi. Um, so back to what you said
1: earlier about um, evil being kind of the, the way that people uh, choose not to understand something different, mm-hmm. uh, that this is interpreted that way. In your own writing, what's the difference between, uh, or where does the line lie between
2: evil and the uncanny? Is there a difference, or does something uncanny always lead to something evil?
0: Oh, you know, I, I think so much of my work is uncanny, and so much of the work is about these characters who um, the world starts to seem stranger and stranger to them. And and I would say very few of those characters are actually you know evil. Um, you know, I just I feel like. For, for me that's kind of the basic condition of being in the world is we, we spend a lot of our time ignoring the fact that the world's uncanny and then and then suddenly you're put in a position where it's very hard not to think that it is so I, I talk a lot about um, this experience I had when I was just walking through a parking lot kind of at, at, in the evening and, and seeing a kind of movement on the side of the parking lot and, and realizing there was a bird over there and as I got closer realizing it was moving stranger and stranger and wondering what was going on with it, whether it was injured or, you know, why it was moving in this erratic fashion and wondering if it was trying to protect its young or, you know, what was happening. And then, you know, got closer and closer and then finally realized that, no, it wasn't a bird at all. It was a leaf. Um, And there's that moment when you suddenly realize this and you just have to revise the world as you've understood it. And the thing that happens, which I think is so interesting, is that consciously, irrationally, I can recognize, yeah, it was a leaf all along, but in part of my head it's still a bird and and that's you know that residue is is just something that i'm really intrigued by so there's there's these moments i think anytime you have an experience that seems uncanny it kind of ties into these other experiences you've you've had um that have made the world this this kind of you know uncanny place so, so I, I see it as more, not necessarily related to evil or, or good, just related to, you know, how we live in the world and awareness or level of awareness. Because mm-hmm. one of the, the terrible things about knowledge is that, you know, if... The, the more certain you want to be of something, the less certain you become. The more you scrutinize it, um, the, the, the the more flawed that notion that you can ever know something completely seems to be. And so, if, you know, kind of on a casual basis, it's like totally functional. We can go through the world. I know I can go out and drive my car home and it's not going to turn into a bird or a leaf. But on another, on the other hand, it's like, you know, these odd moments. Um, you know, I, I try to be really attentive to those moments in which the world is starting to become strange for some reason.
2: Man, did you um, My question is a bit convoluted, but hopefully, the Sure. What you're saying, um, when I was hearing you read the story, I think obviously I was thinking a lot about um, the mythology to the yeah. or or mythology of um, doubt. Yeah. And uh, also. What becomes manifest is, is what I see as another pathology of the, out on the other side, like the pathology of certainty. Yeah. And um, I was, I couldn't help but, but create my own analogy there about uh, like the space of the political, yeah. in the sense that we traditionally think of the intellectual left as like critical and suspicious and like, uh-huh. disband all the foundations of the establishment and so on. And um, we typically think of like the right wing conservatism as. Conserving right. foundation, right. being more assured, yeah. and uh, you know we are always, uh, you know, you say the right, the right have the right rhetoric, uh-huh. you know, because <laughs> the right wing seem to be able to kind of convince us more assuredly yeah. what what we should be scared of. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I was thinking about um, the vectors of power yeah. you know, through those mythologies, and it seemed that when I thought of my political analogy that we're in one horror of the pathology of suspicion, which is like a crisis or stasis, yeah. very private. Yeah. And then it kind of comes out or exceed, exceeds itself into this violent horror of yeah. public mm-hmm. assurance. Yeah. And it's like, if I was to read that as a political narrative, it would tell me that, you know, the left is one horror, but the right is <laughs> so, Yeah, yeah vectors of error that kind of sustain
0: the level of human society Yeah, no, I, I... Well, I completely agree, and it's it's a it's it's like these two extremes that it's hard to figure out a kind of path through sometimes. Okay. And you know, I think the a collapse of horses—the thing that happens in that story—is he kind of keeps on, you know, vacillating back and forth. It's like is the horse or house, and wait, no, maybe they're the same, and he's trying to figure out a way. And then finally, he just gets to the point where he's like, "All right, I just have to burn something." Yeah. <laughs> And you know, I, I think for some reason that's an impulse in a lot of my stories. There's Last Days, which is one of the other books that was just released. With this, uh, is about a character who seems to be kind of trapped between these two cults, and um, and eventually he just decides that he just if he just destroys both of them, <laughs> then then maybe he'll be okay. Um, so so that kind of moves into this other sort of pathology. But I think you're completely right. I mean, this is the tricky thing: is this this kind of private internal doubt? Um, you know, how do you get from there to a kind of engagement uh, and and that's it's a huge question and I, I think a lot of people do it by just you know I think you just get to the point sometimes where you just there's nothing else to do it's like you've got to rather than thinking I'm gonna act in some way and and very often as a result the acts act, act actions end up being very very blunt almost so I mean I think there there is a funny movement from from um, know, the political left into into something that's very close to anarchy sometimes, if that makes any sense. Um I don't know that I understand it all. I think you probably understand it quite a bit better than, than I do. Um but I'm I'm really intrigued by it. So I I, I basically have said I have no um I don't know. <laughs> so but it's a good, good question, and I think it is true that, I mean, I think some of my work does deal with that other kind of right-wing problematic. This, this intense certainty um, that that seems to to most of us in, intensely misplaced. Um, Father of Lies probably deals with that more than anything else, but but it doesn't really provide all that much of a solution to it either. Just one more question. We're being told. I, I,
2: part of the
0: psychology
2: of the character in your story. Yeah. I'm Wondering
0: like about the uh like there's kind of like a Schrodinger's cat aspect of the story. Is oh, yeah. it mm-hmm. or four and doesn't know until he looks. Yeah. So, do you think about that when you yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do absolutely. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm very interested in those moments of I mean these people who try to suspend themselves in these moments where they they can't make dis- distinctions between one thing or another, or, you know, he just he's he feels really caught in this moment of of having seen these horses lying down and not knowing if they're alive or dead, so, which is a very kind of Schrodinger's cat thing. Um especially if you go away and you don't. Before they move so and that's that's you know it 's very much um, that that experience uh, my wife 's a young adult writer, and she talks about a little bit like she was with me when we went to Golden Gate Park in the paddock there and saw Four horses lying on the ground, and and that was it. Every horse was on the ground, um, and I'd never seen a horse lie down before. Despite growing up in the West, um, she had had grown up on a farm, had never seen a horse lie down before, and so it was just it was really weird. And so your initial response is, you know, I should have just thought these are hippie horses but in San Francisco, but but we, um, you know, we, you just think, all right, what's what's wrong here? The world is doing something I don't expect the world to do, and how do I think about? this and my initial thought is you know maybe they're dead and we did wait for, for probably 20 or 30 seconds before there was any flicker of movement we were just far enough away that we couldn't see them breathing and finally a horse flicked its tail and then I was like okay I think we can go now um, but, but, it, you know, but, but you know she went home and she was like she thought that was interesting and that just that experience for whatever reason the way my mind works it kept on working on me and, and the story kind of came out of that So, I I am, you know, my father's a physicist, and he has this weird combination of intense certainty in the world and the sense that's, you know, the way he thinks about science is that, you know, it's a kind of imperfect solution to something that's actually there. And so I kind of grew up kind of seeing someone who could balance those two sides of things. uh, And I think that had probably a big effect on just how I thought about the world.